Thanks, Kelly. Um, I'm really excited to be here. This is my first time to Chattanooga. So I've had a really great uh, few days here. I came in on the weekend, and so it's been fun. And I'm excited to be able to share a little bit about what I do. I'll try to talk Canadian, so I'll say a boot for you. Um, I have a somewhat flat Canadian accent, but it will come out through things like talking about process, not process. Um, like Kelly said, I am 50% I am of the Republic of Quality. My wife and I work together in this. She's a writer and content strategist. And so we work on the web. This is the slide that uh, my daughter wanted me to use because it was far more exciting. No. But I, I call myself an experience architect mostly because I didn't know what to call myself. Right? There are all, so many times where um, what I did was confusing. But really, I spend time doing a lot of things that Aaron was talking about, designing for empathy, trying to understand what it is that people actually need to do, not necessarily what our business goals set us out to think they wanted us to do, you know, but, but connecting those things together. If you need to get a hold of me, you can go to republicofquality.com or on Twitter at HelloFisher. I respond typically the fastest through Twitter, so go ahead and do that. This is a slightly more accurate picture of me if you're looking for me on Twitter. Um, secret is I photoshopped most of that beard in because it wasn't quite in yet, but I knew it was coming. So I'm, I'm a great designer, and we're Canadians, we're, we're quite humble, but there's some things that you try to do for the first time, you realize maybe you don't know everything. First time trying Hulu. My daughter, first time trying Hulu. Yeah, she's a real jerk. Um, this is my wife, who is also the writer and content strategist at the Republic of Quality. She's a little crazy at times. She loves to knit. She just learned to knit. This is probably the most accurate picture of her. It wasn't planned. Yeah, she has knitting, all right. This is my daughter. She often comes with me to events and explores things. We share sort of the photography bug. We love to take pictures together. She's a little bit crazy. You can find her next to the Gatorade in the grocery store. We actually found um, that she, she loves to read, right? So as you get to know people and know their behaviors, you can begin to, to share things with them that maybe impact them a little bit more. Although we found this book in the back of our car that she read cover to cover. <laughs> yeah, but my wife and daughter are fun, crazy. Um, we have dogs. If you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, all you'll see is dogs. So if you care about dogs, this is my dog Sloan and some of the pictures for where we live. Um, she looks a little bit like a deer at times. She's afraid of the water. Our other dog, Neville, uh, who her daughter named after Neville Longbottom from uh, Harry Potter. He loves the water. Um, in fact, recently, I thought this was interesting, I went to pack.app and look at what I found. Um, apparently my pictures are open source and uh, no, it's kind of fun. I love my dogs. This is where I live. If you've never been to Vancouver, I recommend you come visit it. My office is somewhere on by the water up over there. Um, this is what I saw when I went to move there about three years ago. I could go up to Whistler, go snowboarding go hiking in the mountains, that same mountain range. It's beautiful. This is where we were staying when we were looking for a home. It's a very expensive area, but um, we, we loved it. And then we moved there. Yeah, that's pretty much what Vancouver looks like. Um, I apologize for bringing the rain here. I'm sorry. There you go, Canadian reference. I love to cycle everywhere I go, though. And as I've been in Vancouver, I've gone through a progression of bikes until I was hit by an SUV. Um, I had to rebuild my bike, and I do like it even better than I did before. And then I started thinking about the pictures I take while cycling and made a connection to my behavior. 
Yeah, maybe I take too many dangerous cycling photos. But if you want to learn more about me or anything related to Vancouver, go to haveaproblem.com. Okay, so let's get to work here. So as we start to think about responsive projects, responsive discovery, doing user experience and content strategy work, what does it really mean to begin to look at that? Well, I actually believe in uh, and subscribe to that I don't know what's going on most of the times, that I shouldn't make assumptions. Often I do, you know, and, it, and that is good in a, a lean UX approach, which I do use, and I make an assumption, go out and test it, but I feel that most times I'm wrong. And so one of the things I like to focus every team that I work with on is the Golden Circle by Simon Sinek. Anyone familiar with the Golden Circle? Yeah, start with the why is another way that he's been presenting it a little bit more commercially lately. Uh, but 100% of us can say what we do. Um, I'm just going to point at someone at random. What do you do? A You're a curator. Okay. What do you do? You're a web developer. What? Software developer. We can all answer this question. That's easy. We can say what we do. It's harder to say how we do those things. I don't know if you're like me, but I've been in lots of meetings where I'll be nodding to the team saying, yes, we can definitely do that. And I'll walk out and think, oh, shit, can we do that? And they'll have to learn how to do that. Um, and it is true, especially working on the web, something that is new, something that you know is just sort of reaching maturity. We're just starting to understand it fully, or we think we are. Describing the how, maybe 60% of us can do that. But the why? This fuzzy middle, this core, is difficult. And so he gives this example of two different companies. And he's talking about a generic PC company and Apple. Okay, so if we talk about the PC company, and I'm not a fanboy, so I use lots of different devices constantly. Um, but if we think about this example, as Simon Sinek talks about it, the PC company, what do they do? They build computers for people to use, right? Simple. Uh, how do they do it? They source different manufacturers' parts. They get those manufacturers to work together. They assemble the computer. Like, it's very straightforward. You know, it's a complex business to run, but how they're doing it, they can begin to describe that. And why? Well, often it's to provide computers for business to work so that those businesses can make money and they can make money, the manufacturers themselves, people producing the computers. Straightforward. Makes sense to me. Good business. When he talks about Apple computers and how Steve Jobs talked about wanting to think differently, to change the world. And you don't have to agree with some of those statements, and maybe those statements aren't true anymore even. But if a company starts off by saying, I'm going to change the world, right, and that's their why, instead of I'm going to make you know, $270 billion later on. Um, and then they start to say, how? Well, we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to look at that why and see how can we put these things together to really start to change the world. Maybe it's that single source, and maybe we have a different level of quality control. And what? Well, it's a lot of these products that we see around that have transformed the world or the way that we think about them. That doesn't mean that the iPhone is the best phone or ever was the best phone, right? But I'm more compelled to get involved with someone that sees things differently and looks through a different lens, whether that's at the web or at a computer company. I want to buy a product from someone that says they're going to think different. They're going to change the world. So uh, zombie reference coming up, I do this in every presentation, but um, how many of you have never heard of a zombie before? Don't know what that is at all. Good. Oh, really? No. Come on. Um, anyways, I've been in presentations where that happens, but one of the reasons I like to reference this is the zombie genre tells the same story over and over and over, generally. And I could probably sum it up in about 30 seconds. Someone will wake up in the hospital, they're alone, somehow they survived their coma for, let's say, I don't know, 28 days, and it's 28 days later, um, they'll separate themselves from their IV, they'll stumble out, 
Um, you know, there'll be leaves blowing around the streets, papers, maybe they're in, um, you know, London. And then suddenly something attacks, some human-like beast that's rotting, and they fight it off, somehow decapitate it or something like that. And they realize that's how they kill it. They meet up with some other humans. Most of them survive, some of them die. The hero... Um, probably is going to make it to the end of the movie. And they realize that things are hopeless, though. There's no way to really recover humanity from the apocalypse. Right? So that's kind of the zombie genre. Well, here's an opening from The Walking Dead. An alternate opening, though. and in things like a zombie apocalypse to focus on this. The apocalypse itself, the zombies, that, that we understand there's no way to go back to where we were before. We've lost that and we need to move forward with how it is. Right? But this isn't what, for me, the zombie movies are about. This isn't the part of the story that I focus on that I love. I love this part. Um, the retaining of our humanity in that apocalypse. How do we move forward and really understand how we can still be human, how we can have these interactions. A lot of people would describe what has happened through social media or devices as an apocalypse of devices, of disconnection. We'll see these videos on Facebook that'll say social media is ruining our interactions. I don't think that's true. I think it could be, right? But I think it's us that's ruining those interactions, that we don't know what to do with this new form of communication that we have. But when we can focus on the human interactions, we have a chance of surviving this apocalypse. Right? So this is, used to be how we view the web, not too long ago, actually. In fact, my daughter didn't know what the one second from the right was. She didn't know what Internet Explorer was. Things have changed that much. Um, and she used PCs at her school and stuff. It's not that she doesn't have that. Right? And then we start to maybe look at a little bit more like this, where different browsers on different devices, a little bit harder to predict, and we're looking at the web this way. Well, this is not the web. The web isn't a bunch of cogs and machines connecting to each other. Maybe the technical side of it is, but it's us connecting to one another, whether you're selling a product or interacting through social media. But what we've created in so many times, so many situations, is this fragmented situation, right, where we think about the goals, the features, all these other things first, and we care about the devices, right? But this is not what the web is about. Right? We have this opportunity when we do every single one of our projects to use things like progressive enhancement, designing for empathy, to create something that is more of a wholehearted experience. Right? And so that's really what this responsive discovery is about, these stories of discovery. Um, I have a really outdated site that I am hoping to update sometime soon called responsiveprocess.com where I start to just talk about the process that we were using the company. Because I thought open sourcing my ideas and how we're doing things is a way of creating this. So feel free to go to responsiveprocess.com and take a look at that. And if you want to help out with the update of it, if you want to share some of your process and how we can do this, let me know.
But I'm going to talk to you about a, a city in Canada called the city of Surrey. It's right next door to Vancouver. In fact, it's growing far faster than Vancouver. Um, it's going to be one of the, it's one of the fastest growing large municipalities um, in North America. I think we hear that a lot though. Every municipality is somehow the fastest growing municipality. But this is what they're currently look like. This is what they're projecting for the future. You know, it's surrounded by the mountains. And so I was working on a project where we were going to take it from being this uh, static fixed width site with over 200 content authors, you know, and, and all these content templates. They had over 100 different content templates for creating them into a responsive refresh in a very short amount of time. Now, my project manager that I met with, um, and I blurred out the names on this project plan to protect the innocent, um, but when I told him, I said, we're going to need to be a little bit disruptive with this. We don't fully know how this is going to work. And so when we learn something as we go along, we're going to have to shift the project a little bit. But we'll stay within the constraints of time frame and budget. But we can't tell you for sure what we're going to do. Right? And he just looked at me and said, that's not how Microsoft Project works. Right? And, and if you've ever worked with someone that, is, uh, that loves to work in a waterfall process, that made sense to him. And it actually made sense to me. I realized what he was saying. You know, and often, this is um, the process that we want. We want sort of all the powers that logically seem to fit together, very few weaknesses. But this is the process that Surrey needed. Right? They needed the thing that was going to break things up, right? That was going to show them where it wasn't working and where it could work. So we started off by thinking about our message. Right? This is a dentist very close to my, um, my home. And they made this big announcement that they've gone green, paperless, on a giant piece of paper. Right? And I thought, you could have done this differently. You're going to have a, this, this situation. So they're telling the right message in the wrong way. But I was in Minneapolis last year. And I was coming through in their airport, it seemed like it was falling apart. I didn't know what was going on, like if there had been some sort of, you know, vandalism. And when I finally got through and I saw this sign, yeah, we know it's ugly, but the good news is it's only temporary. That was the right message at the right time in the right way. You know, and the next time I went to Minneapolis, they had fulfilled this message to me, you know, that they were improving. But sometimes in a responsive or adaptive web, we think about things um, from only one context. So here's my little puppy. And he's, uh, he's now eight months, but this was him around four months. The first month we had him, he was very, very sick, which is dangerous for puppies, right? And he was constantly having uh, diarrhea, he was throwing up, and we couldn't figure out what it was. And then finally we got to the stage where we figured it out, and he had solid poop <laughs> for uh, four days in a row. So I put that on Instagram, the picture of the puppy, it all makes sense. Like hashtag winning, hashtag GSP, which is German short-haired pointer. Only know that if you have a German short hair pointer. I didn't think about the other channels I was pushing this out to. Makes sense here. This is what it looked like on Twitter. <laughs> and these are the responses I got. You know, was afraid but willing to open that photo. Glad you're feeling better, Hello Fisher, but there's no way I'm clicking the photo link accompanying that post. Funny, right? Uh, a couple months later, I was down in San Diego running a workshop, and I walked in and out of the room and came back in, and the room was filled with, like, we're using Sharpies, Post-it notes, it all makes sense in this type of workshop, but we it just smelled of Sharpie. So it said, really great group at my responsive content modeling workshop today, uh, we may also be getting a high on Sharpie fumes, IS-14. And I was careful to sort of look in and go, that's about the right characters. Uh, I was off by a couple, and this is what happened, again. We may also be getting high, dot, dot, dot. 
right? Now, the funny thing is the project sponsor for the city of Surrey was the first response uh, right away. And she, she thought it was hilarious. But that was me thinking about my content in one context. And it doesn't work that way anymore, right? So when we get into projects, we need to think about our team. I'm going to use uh, my dogs to help illustrate some of these concepts. So this is my puppy, or Sloan. Yeah, aw, come on. It's a puppy. We, <laughs> thank you for audience participation there. Um, we get to know each other. We think we know what the future is holding when we get together as a team for the first time. So here's my puppy, energetic, you know, loves me. I'm planning for her future here. This coat was a little too big. It in fact, just fits her now. This was a year ago. She would come to work with me. I'd learn about her behaviors at work. So I observe people as they work. I observe teams and what they say they want. So she clearly wants to get outside here badly, right? And then what they actually want. I live in Vancouver, it rains a lot, my dog doesn't like rain, right? So the behavior from what they say and what they actually want on teams often is very different. The, the problems they get themselves into, this is in our backyard, the things that they're proud of, how they interact as a team, how they see themselves, this is a big one when we're working with teams, how we see ourselves and then how maybe others see us, right? Um, that's not Photoshopped in any way. But then how we can help these teams as we work on projects together to get them to where they need to be. Um, I believe in interdisciplinary teams, that it's not really good for a content strategist to work alone, a developer to work alone, you know, a designer to work alone in their silos, or whole departments of design to be by themselves and then hand off something to development. That's not cool. We should be actually talking to each other throughout the whole process. That may mean that a tech lead comes in to consult early on and then takes over a far more robust role as we get later on in the project. Or it could be that they're there the entire time with a full-fledged role and we're rolling these ideas back and forth on each other. Right? When we don't do this, this is the type of reaction we have. When we do do this, this is what happens on teams. So this is a developer, a project manager, content strategist, and a project lead working together. That's part of the key to these responsive projects, right? Work together. Weird, eh? Canadian. Yeah, some Canadian content for you there. I promised some. But sometimes when we're in the same physical space, it doesn't actually mean that we're working together. This was part of the team for the City of Surrey project, all with their headphones on, ignoring each other. But when we do spend time, whether it's virtually or physically, we get to experience things together. We get to have debates about how we're going to vote. There we go, it was. Um, how we're going to implement things. This is where we can virtually, so this is another project we're working on, and this is over in the corner here, the content strategist and designer. She's a very, very picky designer, and she's looking at this presentation that our project manager put together. So I'm grinning on the side there, and she's horrified. We can have these experiences together. I'm just gonna say, watch your back when you leave your office. That was my computer. You know, but this is the team for the City of Surrey project, and there's, People representing the city of Surrey, there's people representing a third company, and then the company I was at called Yellow Pencil at the time. I consider all of them the project team. Okay, the clients, the stakeholders, they are part of the project team as much as you know, the vendors that are hired to do it. I think it's important to get involved in the culture of companies. So I would spend a day, I was fortunate enough to be close enough that I could go a day a week and just work at a desk at the city of Surrey. I didn't need to be there but I knew that moments would pop up. And so we had done a project for the firefighters and the firefighters showed up in full uniform to thank us for it, right? It could have just been this plaque that we received, but we have these moments where we experience things together because we have to create 
this environment for the unplanned moments of discovery. If we don't do that, if we plan everything out and think that's all there will be, we'll never actually find all the real gold nuggets that we could have. The keys that might take us from that 80% to the 95% of success for this project, of really understanding people. From a practical sense though, on our project, you need to audit all the things. You need to see where everything is, what the state of the quality of the content, the quality of the code, different things that are happening within the project. Right? So here's a place really close to one of the places I take my dogs for walks, and this is in the summer. Beautiful, right? They're down there swimming, and everyone else is running to go join them. And I stopped with one of my dogs and saw this sign. Oh, this doesn't look good. Right? But when you don't pay attention to things, you don't audit things, sometimes you don't see the warning signs. Like that there were several lives claimed here. Um, how many of you have ever felt like you've been involved in a project that is claiming your life because you didn't understand the state of it at the start? All of a sudden, you think, oh, we thought there was 10,000 content pages, but we missed all the PDFs, and we missed this whole section over here, and so now there's triple, and we have to fit this in. Once we kind of understand that state, um, I like to focus in on something called uh, user experience vision and then design principles. Often people jump to goals at this point, but we kind of have these organizational goals that are already out there, but we forget about the user experience vision. What it is it that we're trying to deliver to our audiences? Um, so user experience vision for the city of Surrey, it's actually online. They're going to uh, be releasing this to anyone to see, to access. This is just a WordPress install that they have where they talked about their, they call it their project vision statement, right? Um, and it's this great thing where we come together to have this understanding of what we're going to deliver to the users that we have. It's not something that has to be wordsmith, but we bring it together, we create it together. Same with the design principles. These are the why statements, these guideposts that we create. So for them, they want it to be, um, you know, future proof, that may be a little too strong, but a plan for sustainable architecture and content. 200 content authors, right? Uh, tens of thousands of content pages. Well, how do they maintain that over time? And if they're creating a system that doesn't meet one of these things, that's why there are guideposts that guide us back to the vision. So as we decide to implement a new feature, to develop in a certain way, we can say, huh, one of them, I don't know if it scrolled down there enough, but it was accessibility. They had to meet certain accessibility standards. Well, we can't implement this feature because we don't have the resources to make it accessible, so we're gonna wait six months to do that. Or we're going to implement it this way today and know that in six months we'll have the full implementation. So these things guide us as we make these decisions. But sometimes they get ignored early on in a project. And again, we create this debt very, very quickly without even trying. And we can then focus in on goals. I'm going to skip that part for now though. The goals, of course, are the measurable bits. We look back and say, okay, we met this level of accessibility. We didn't just say that it was important. We actually did. Another thing that I believe in in the process for responsive design is collaborative sketching. And this isn't new. This isn't something new to responsive design. And that can look something like this, where I sat down with one of the project stakeholders and we just start to sketch out, understanding you know, what some of their rules and restrictions were. And she could feedback to me and say, you know what? I know there's no way we're going to win the battle of the content slider on the homepage. And there's so many other things that we can do if we just ignore that for the moment. Right? And that was maybe a little bit of heartbreak for me, but at the same time, if I was just sketching it out, I would have said, well, that's gone. Right? We're going to fight that one for sure. But she knew her stakeholders better than I did. And so because we're working together, we could accomplish more. Often, it looks more like this. 
where I'll spend a workshop, maybe it's two, three, four days in a room with whiteboards or just pieces of paper, post-it notes, different things, where we'll sketch out some of the vision and concepts and content modeling together. So within the past few years, just a couple of years, Starbucks relaunched their site as responsive. Um, and they kind of thought about it like this. So if you think about a product page and a basic wireframe, we may have you know, the site ID, logo, whatever it is. Some navigation, a giant blob of content, technical term there, blob of content, where they had all their product information. A sidebar, that's what they called it, a sidebar. Um, and then a footer area, and then this call to action. So it's a product page here. This makes perfect sense for me. I look at this and go, yeah, okay, I could read about the product, I can navigate it, I could buy it, I could read a little bit of secondary info about it, I can contact the organization, social media links, whatever happens to be there. But because they hadn't thought about the different contexts or the priorities of their content, they hadn't, this is what happened when it was sort of refactored, let's call it, into um, a different screen resolution, different screen size. We've got this lost call to action. Now I'm not talking about the fold or anything like that. But honestly, because they hadn't prioritized their content across different scenarios and thought about it that way, and thought about these big blobs, and even calling something a sidebar, unless you're developing in WordPress, that probably shouldn't exist anymore. And that's more of a term that they're using within their CMS. It's a really sad moment to have done this this way. Canadian content, again. Um, what they should have done and what they did very quickly um, was thought about smaller discrete chunks of content. So logo, navigation, how about a page title, you know, or, um, now I'm oversimplifying this example, but a, a piece of intro copy, clarity copy, deck copy, whatever you want to call it, that describes a product. Maybe supporting information about that product is still kind of a bigger blob of content, but it's its own chunk as well. This small discrete chunk of content for the call to action, a secondary area, a tertiary area, you know, so this call to action isn't lost it's still a call to action because it's prioritized content. We've got the logo, the navigation, the, the title, some descriptive content, and then the ability to actually take action or to continue to read more, right? It was this incredibly happy moment because they took care to do a little bit of responsive content modeling, right? But the truth is responsive design won't fix our content problems, right? Uh, Karen talked about this about a year ago, and it's true, right? We, we often think that we can just use a system that's ready for responsive, whether that happens to be a WordPress theme or a Squarespace. They've got great videos that tell you you can just drag and drop your photo in, and it's resized, and you can drag your photos around, and everything's just going to work across all devices. It will technically work, but it may not meet the goals that you set out. Your priorities for your content may not be there still. So I believe in this responsive content modeling approach where we're collaborative and we look for that central sort of um, atomic piece of content. And this is what it looks like for me when I actually get into these workshops. So we're sketching out um, different things, but we're also listing out all the different discrete content types here um, and prioritizing each one of them. So if I zoom in a little bit, you might be able to see this a bit better. This is a bit of a brainstorm. This is a bit of a dump from what exists if it's a refresh, but also we have to think about the future state of the content. And so we group everything that's here. So there's like a title, clarity copy, search, breadcrumbs, social sharing, feature image, inline images, all sorts of things into three groups. The first one is, is uh, priority group one. That's essential. This content template, this view, cannot exist without those things. So if they're not there, it's a fail right away. 
And so that could be things that are extremely important, like the title, but it could also be things that are legally required, like a privacy policy. Right? Um, so it's not necessarily the first thing you'll see on that view, but it has to be essential. Priority group two is great. It's going to fully support the vision for this. And priority group three, it's nice to have. So if they're not there, it's still going to work. And, but if they are there, it's great. That's the easy part. We all have to agree on that. So it's not um, coming to compromise and saying, well, okay, if someone sits back in any one of these workshops and I can tell that they're shutting down, that's when we sort of engage with the conflict that's being avoided, but it's actually there, right? Um, we then get into each of those groups and prioritize everything inside the group. This is the really hard part. So something is priority group one and priority one within that group. Right? For this municipality, they decided that their site ID logo was on this particular thing, which at first I disagreed with. But the more they talked about how eroded their brand had been online, the more I saw the potential of why this could be important to them. And we came to agreement. So everything gets prioritized and everything is fought through. So if someone disagrees, we immediately stop and we discuss. So I'm not talking about like people are like punching each other, but sometimes you know it gets a little aggressive. Um, but it's those moments of conflict that we fight through that create bonding and true collaboration. When we avoid them, you know, we're avoiding the opportunity to have a great experience, to experience empathy that we heard about already today, but also to meet our users where they're at and for our teams to understand. From there, I like to sketch at least two different screen sizes, starting with like a smaller screen typically first, so that we as a team can understand the content priorities in a potential interface. And this is really lo-fi, this is never the final thing, but it also creates all these aha moments where we start to say, well, how would someone actually use the navigation for this? Or, or how would we display critical alerts for a municipality that continues to experience flooding every year? How do we get that information out there? Um, you may do this multiple times, right? But it creates, again, this bond within the team. Because when we don't think about our content and we start to develop these things, we create what are black holes. You know, because a website is a black hole without its content. We create a fancy bucket and try to shove things into it. And we've done that as an industry for a long time. Um, but I think that we have opportunities and are really doing it better now, but to create understanding our users and our content. Another thing that we did a lot on this project was make phone calls. You know, this is actually a phone, as it turns out. Uh, we could talk to each other, so we did so frequently. We thought about the mental models of the people that are using things. So how many of you ever moved into a new apartment or house or anything ever in your life? Most, most people in the room, if not everyone, right? Well, I moved into a new place in Vancouver, and it took us a long time. We looked at 60 different places, and we finally arrived at... Um, this kind of complex here because it met all our requirements. We needed to be within uh, 30 minutes cycling to my office, a walk to my daughter's school. It had to have a park around it in some way or other. Um, and, and it had to be a walkout. It couldn't be like a high rise. We didn't want that. And so we went and visited it. And this is what our patio looks like. This is obviously after we've got our show dog in there. <laughs> it looks like something out of Ikea, actually, this photo. But we experienced things on a Sunday afternoon at this house most often. Our real estate agent took us there when people were available and it was beautiful, sunny out. And we moved in. And then a month after we moved in, we started to notice that there were a few crows in the area. Oh, okay. That's interesting. And then a little later in that month, a few more crows. To the point that we'd go to the park next to us and we'd see for 15 minutes the sky started to get black with crows everywhere, 40,000 commuter crows in Vancouver. 
40,000 all fly over our home once a day. Uh, well, actually twice a day. We just don't see them in the morning. But because we weren't visiting at a certain time of year or a certain time of day, we didn't know that. And we just went at the times that were convenient to us. Contextual observation, going and visiting people where they're using things, asking them how they use them and just listening is really important on any project. So when it came time for card sorting, which I've done it many times this way, we realized that these usernames that we're talking about are people. And bringing them into our context wasn't going to work anymore for us because we were getting people coming in that were more interested in the gift card we are giving them than actually giving us useful information. So how did we resolve that? Well, we went to them. We took our iPads out and we started to do card sorting on the fly. We met people at bus stations, at libraries, swimming pools. I was standing in a pool holding my iPad very nervously while other people did some card sorting on it. And you'd have these moments of discovery that were just really great. That's totally staged though. Um, but we used Optimal Sort for it and it worked really well. In fact, we got far better results in less time than we ever would have if we brought people into us. It's not that the other card sorting didn't work, but again, we were meeting people where they were at. And then the team from the city of Surrey came in and helped us start to look at, there we go, how to organize their content based on what we heard from people. And so we used um, something called Slick Plan to help collaboratively, again, create the site map for this thing, how the navigation would actually be, or where things would belong throughout the site. You know, and the city of Surrey has tens of thousands of pages on their site, right? And they go seven levels deep within their navigation. It's complex, but how could we organize it based on the user's mental models and not necessarily internal logic? So if you're wondering, that's a slick plan there. We also did empathy and experience mapping. So remember her? That's my daughter, Emma. Um, she's a lot of fun, she's pretty sassy. And one day she decided that she wanted to start up her own business at age 10. Uh, okay. Um, it was a recycling business because she noticed that our neighbors were throwing out their bottles and not taking them to the recycling depot. And she was very upset about that for two reasons. One, you know, she wanted to make sure those things got recycled. And two, that was money just left sitting there. Um, and so I thought, this is great. Well, let's figure out how we're going to do this. And so her and my wife talked about it. And she sends me this text one day. Dad, can you get three containers, Rubbermaid or recycling bins, whichever, please? Well, what for? Mom's recycling idea. Three people said yes so far. Ah, well, cool. So you'll get them. Not today, but yes. Why not today? You out. You're, you're out. And she said all this in like a few seconds here, right? I said, Dad, come on. Uh, be more patient, please. I would like to measure the front steps and see um, what is best, what fits and looks good. She said, oh, okay. So she was rushing forward, want to build this thing. It's like so many web projects I've been on where a stakeholder wants to do that. She can see the money. Um, but when it was explained to her what we might do, she's like, oh, okay, this makes sense. So we went out, and I'm excited as a user experience designer that my daughter is going to have a project like this. So we took photos. This was one of the doors up front, and every place had a slightly different front, but they all had places for the containers similar to what we had for our recycling. Every one of them said no to the containers. They said, we want to bring the bottles to you, and here's why. Our place was around the back and hard to find, and every other place was exposed to the street or the alley. And people would constantly come by if you put their bottles out and they would take them. And that was okay, right? So like someone that was homeless would take the bottles and that's fine. That's, I think, a good use of the bottles. But they say they'd actually cause problems for them safety-wise at times. And so they always kept the bottles inside. And they would prefer to just bring them to my daughter. 
And uh, so she started up this business. And if we hadn't done a little bit of this um, experience mapping of what people actually wanted to do, as opposed to what we thought, we would have spent money on a feature that we would have thrown away later, which were these bins, or had no use for. We'd be recycling the bins that we bought for the recycling. So Adaptive Path has great resources around this. It's under mappingexperiences.com. You know, where it actually takes you through the process of doing that, of seeing the customer journey. One of the examples they've had up on their blog for years now, I think it might be even a decade, looks a little bit like this, where we see the customer journey from research, planning, shopping, what they're thinking, doing, and other behaviors through problem areas. And we actually map this out to understand how people use things. So I'd encourage you to check out mappingexperiences.com, and it's a free download from them. Right? You can have this little PDF resource audience profiles. So we want to take a look at our audiences. And we actually did this quite early on, but we're looking for trends in audiences. Um, so I'm actually a believer in profiles versus personas. Uh, they both work really well, but I always feel like personas are fake because I've given this person, Sally, a face and a name, and she represents a group, but I treat her like she's a real person. But no person actually exists within that group that has the exact characteristics of Sally. So when we talk about a profile, we can be a little bit more honest that it is a group they're representing. Honestly, both work. This is just me being a jerk from Canada. Um, this is three generations of Fisher. You've got to get to know our personalities to really understand us. One thing I found out throughout the years of working a bit, especially on this project, is I needed to be willing to adapt myself. Because again, my dog thinks she's a hero. I think I'm a hero. Right? But the truth is, when I tell people what I do, they often don't understand at all what it is. I feel, you know, poor Steve. Right? But when I'm willing to adapt, I find that I'm actually quite happy. So to do this project with Surrey, we had to learn from another city. So what we decided to do was to go over there. So we flew away from Vancouver. This is another ad for Vancouver. Even though it's gray, it's beautiful. Um, took a seaplane over to a close-by city, the city of Victoria. And we sat down and we listened to people's experiences that had come to um, the city of Surrey. These are my primary research tools when doing stakeholder interviews. I have an iPad and a little microphone and sticky notes, right? Because um, real discovery happens between the planned activities. Right? Again, I can't emphasize this enough, right? That, that we need to have these moments of space where we're listening to something, someone. So we were talking specifically to them about transit because they ran the other half of transit in the province. There's a chunk over by Vancouver, and then this other city of Victoria runs what's called BC Transit. And what they shared with us was surprising. We decided to take transit. We went and visited, had an opportunity to visit their headquarters here. So, because we were implementing a lot of these features within Surrey.ca, or one of features, but the ability for people to do things. So really sophisticated transit system, but what the drivers actually used, who were the number one people who got information from the ridership, who was the main audience for this portion of it, these things called paddles. They're just these pieces of paper that they would take out. They had to clock in in a digital system in the exact minute of their shift, they take a piece of paper, they had five minutes to circle their bus, and then get on and drive away. And they might have a different model of bus they haven't driven in months. So someone in one of our stakeholder meetings said, would anybody like to drive a bus? Yes, you know, was the answer right away. And that was a little bit selfish, but I also knew that it was gonna show me something different, and it did. So another user experience driver and I got to take out a double-decker bus, 23 tons, and drive it around in a yard. We weren't actually on the street, because that would have been bad. Um, and I don't recommend taking selfies while driving a 23-ton bus, but uh, I wasn't actually moving during this. 
but we learned how complex the system was and how a driver can actually get off at a stop and another driver had to get on and drive the bus away full. And they may not have driven that model in years and their controls were often in different places. So the, the way to shift, the way to signal, the way to use the radio would be in different places on different models of bus. And they just had to go and it was incredibly stressful. And these were the people we were asking to give us feedback on what the ridership the users wanted. This insight was exciting to us because it was one of those moments between, between the plan discovery that made that project a little bit more successful. To get practical though, I believe in doing in-browser wireframes. I no longer do any static wireframes unless they're a sketch on a piece of paper or a whiteboard. Right? And this is partially why here. Um, this is probably no surprise to any one of you, but this is from Wikipedia recently. This is just Android devices alone. And if we look at the, I think it's the fourth and fifth columns there, it's the operating system version and the screen resolution of which there's almost no combinations that are the same as you go through it. And there's different hardware they're using, very different experiences. And you can kind of tell by how far and fast I'm having to scroll what the issue is here. And it arrives at some other devices. And this is just Android that we're talking about here, right? So what about other devices too? If we're starting to look at some potential future devices, things that exist but may be used in ways we don't know. That could be a, a small screen that's an immersive experience or different. You know, or I often wear a Pebble watch. How do we deliver prioritized content to that if we haven't taken time to do content modeling and know what our one one and our one two, the most important messages we're trying to deliver on. But for more of the responsive web, I'm looking at, this is what um, the City of Surrey's wireframes looked like. They came directly out of the content modeling um, so we had these sketches that we began to iterate and test and then we brought in the annotations from the descriptions we had in our content modeling. So a very lean process and this was just using a variation of foundation that was at the time foundation wasn't mobile first and we wanted to do that but to be able to take this out to people and begin to test right away again back to the bus stops back to the libraries back to the pools and say hey if you were looking for this type of information how would you find it and have these active listening labs that we had where people are using the potential future site. And then to move into in-browser design. So I'm not talking about necessarily designing in the browser, although I do believe that that is completely possible. If design is finding solutions to problems, why do we have to do that with Photoshop you know, or a pencil? Why can't we do that in code and be thinking there too? We can is the answer. And so for them, this was their old site that they had had for a few years, and we were doing a, a refresh of it for them. So they were just understanding their, their actual new brand that they had barely had when they created this site and how people actually wanted to use it. And so to take the design into the browser allowed us to do another round of testing, another round of testing and iteration and quickly learn from people as we went along to see how is it that they're actually thinking about this content both in you know, a desktop situation, but as we extend the desktop to a small screen environment, what does that mean for them there? And it created a great level of buy-in from stakeholders who came with us for the testing, as well as um, the actual people that are gonna be using it. It wasn't as big a surprise when we came out. We learned so much. On any given project like this, in a responsive discovery, and a responsive project, it's important to celebrate our successes together. Sometimes these are long-term projects, sometimes they are short. But again, this is the project team. 
right? So project managers, designers, developers, project sponsors, stakeholders. We even had some of the people that came out and did testing come out to the you know, launch party with us. And this is just kind of this small little group. The truth is you never stop, right? You've got to keep on discovering. And so the week after the site launched, we had um, you know, a roadmap for them, the way that they're going to maintain the site long-term, and began to prioritize the things that we knew couldn't be met on the first launch. Beyond that, we continue to do lunch and learns for their content authors, where you'd sit down in different environments. Um, and one of the great successes was we taught them how to use, to create their content in their organization. So this is a little snapshot of their governance model and how it goes from the business unit to actually being published, right? And for them, this transformed how they communicated. So this isn't specific to a responsive project, but Somewhere in here, people are saying, well, I have to create this content for multiple devices. What does that mean? Who do I have to talk to? How does that get produced? So you may have noticed that on any given project, especially when we're talking about communicating, communication as important as the web and where it could go, which is almost anywhere, collaboration is the key. And there is only one team. There isn't a client team and a vendor team. There is a project team. We're in this together. Thank you, and if you're looking for some of the resources I talked about, this is a Google Drive folder. I usually give this out during my workshop, but I'm gonna give it out now. So if you just go to rockme slash model, roq.me model uh, slash model, you can get a few things in a Google Drive to use. And thank you very much.